Yo, what's good, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Two Really Dope Dudes. I'm your boy. Uh, I didn't put at the new Negro today. I put <laughs> Andrew at Jamie Collisar. And my guy, what's up, McDonald? What up, what up, man? Uh, yeah, so interesting week, right? Yo, super interesting, man. Things been up and down. I think after our last conversation, man, so many people hit me up. So many people have been texting me, appreciating um, all the all the uh, all the wonderful things that Javante had to say. Yeah, um, I think the conversation was pretty insightful. He definitely dropped some jewels that I wasn't aware of, as far as you know what true reparations could look like, and explaining it in a way that I felt that was more digestible by the average person. Right, so it wasn't necessarily confrontational in the sense of what I always thought, you know, uh, reparations would look like. So um, I definitely have a new appreciation for it. And at least if I were to speak about it, I feel like I'm armed with some information that I can definitely uh, get behind. So for sure, it was a, was a dope conversation. Yeah, man, facts, man. You know, because I think a lot of people just think about reparations as a check going into uh, black, uh, black people's uh, bank accounts. Right. Like, whole idea of relieving African Americans from certain uh, certain bills or certain um, certain certain things that we are taxed heavily upon. Man, it, right. was dope, man. it was dope. But yo, to the uh, to the those that are watching, we just want to let you know: like, subscribe, share, yeah. put something in the comment because today's conversation is going to be lit. I already know it is because I'm already on fire just thinking about the conversation and and the topic today. So look. Let's get right into it. So your favorite rapper, yeah. <laughs> Boosie. <laughs> so Boosie dropped it. There was a video, a pretty controversial video um, that was um, put out there by Boosie where he was on his live and he was talking about um, some things as it relates to his sons. And he has younger sons, 11 and 13, I believe. And um, that basically set the Internet on fire. Uh, the the subject matter of what he was talking about isn't necessarily uncommon, but I think to hear somebody verbalize it uh, just really kind of sent shockwaves through the internet. Um, and, and, And what was so crazy to me was the fact that there was an even split in terms of what people felt and what they thought about it. So I think that it might just be best instead of me trying to do it justice yeah, and trying to, yeah, let's just go to the video. So the video, people, so show the video, I'm gonna let some folk out there know it's quite disturbing. There's yeah, also, and this is, yeah, there's also some language in there that I know you use, uh, but you probably don't use it in public or around. <laughs> oh, but um, we're gonna play the video, right? Right, if you got children in the room, this is a good time to have Fact. them step away. For Max, real. Max. So, yeah, uh, put the headphones on the kids, and I'm about to show that video right now. Hey. Don't get to talking about my son. I got my son's dick sucked early. I got that bitch sucked early. Yeah, all my nephews, ask any one of my nephews, or uh, any one of my, ask any one of my nephews or my son who got them they first head. Yeah, I'm just saying. Don't you, you bring your juvenile daughter around here? She might get fucked. Yeah, that's why they got iPhone 11s. They can watch as much porn as they want. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> nah. uh. So, so man, look, look, man, yeah. We got. Go we got ahead. Some, go ahead. We got some guests. We got. We got one reoccurring guest that pops in whenever he got time for us. <laughs> um, you know, that's Jordan Houston. So I'm gonna bring Jordan in and then we'll unpack it and then we'll bring in our, our special guest. That is that cool with you? Yeah, let's do it. All right, bring him out, bring him out. Jordan Houston, Martin. What's going on, y'all? What up? What up? What up? What's good, yo, man. Appreciate y'all having me on the show for sure. Yo, for sure, yeah. So, man, we were just about to get into a little bit about the Boosie video. So, man, what, what, are, you, what are your thoughts, Jordan? What, what What's going through your brain? Man, first of all, the video was wild, bro. Like, <laughs> like absolutely out of this world. But now I just thought it was extremely interesting. I think when I first looked at the video, I tried to look at, try to view it from a very isolated standpoint. Um, but when you actually consider our culture and how our culture is extremely hypersexualized 
And not only that, but we actually like sexualize our children as well at a very, very early age. It's not only an issue that's isolated specifically towards Boosie, but I think it's a reflection of our of our bigger culture here in America. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. So look, with with every with every subject that we touch on, you know, obviously we're not the uh, in-house experts, right? We can give opinions and so forth, but I think to legitimize, bring legitimacy to the conversation and at least bring some balance to it, I think that it does it justice to bring someone that actually works every day in a field that that uh, you know that deals with these types of things. And so, as as in tra the tradition of two really dope dudes, you know, we usually have like pretty dynamic guests that have really uh, good, insightful information um, and uh, points of view tied to the topics that we we cover. So today is 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 uh, following in that same vein. And so our guest today is a, uh, she's actually currently an attorney advisor with Equitus, I believe is the name of, of the organization where she travels around the country teaching prosecutors and law enforcement and other allied professionals best practices in handling domestic violence, um, sexual assault and human trafficking. And I don't wanna get too deep into you know her, her background because there's so much more that she's done over the past uh, well, actually, her entire life's career has been dedicated to this. So without further ado, I want to bring out our special guest today, my good friend, Dahlia Racine. That's right. Dahlia Racine. She's a bring them out. Bring them out. Bring them out. Hey, uh, how's everyone doing? Hey, How you doing? I'm alive. <laughs> so, so let's 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 not let's not go through the pleasantries. I want to get right into the meat and potatoes and let's get into it. So Dahlia you had a chance to watch the video. You've heard the commentary that's been out here that's been going on about it. What were your initial thoughts when you saw that video? Yeah, man, where to start? Um, you know, I think the, the first thing that struck me was that there's no doubt about the fact that what he said, uh, what he admitted to doing is a crime. Um, no two ways about it, it's a crime. Um, quite honestly, if we flip the scenario, right, if, if he was talking about his 12 year old daughter and bringing in grown men to season her, if you will, right. um, we will be outraged. But simply because we flip the genders, now all of a sudden it's it's something different. It's, it's a rite of passage or it's not that egregious. And, um, you know, it's just it's tough being a mom of boys and knowing that we have big issues with our sons constantly being viewed in this world as men while they're still boys. Um, right. This falls right in line with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, what's, what's even, what was disturbing to me with watching the video, first of all, the video is like 12 minutes long, but I think what was really, you know, Boosie is Boosie and clearly he's inebriated and I'm not giving an excuse for what he said, but it's the people that were normalizing it and the mm -hmm. amount of heart emojis that kept going up as he's saying this, and you probably have one or two people in between that are, you know, are trying to check him, but he's just like, yo, he's just, I mean, it's just crazy of how wrong and strong he is about the way he's raising his voice. I think, so I think what struck me wasn't just necessarily the fact that there were people that were supporting this point of view, um, but I think it spoke to a greater issue as to how normal this is in our society that, this whole rite of passage, if you will, uh, for young boys and in some instances for young women, um, that it's so normal and accepting in our culture that, you know, that you had such a split. You had 50% of the people, I mean, I'm throwing percentages out there, but you had a good number of people out there that were actually in support and galvanizing, I mean, fiercely behind uh, the comments. There were people on my timeline that, we're putting up posts in defense of this that were basically saying that um, it's his kid, so he should be able to determine, you know, how soon, as long as he's supervising it. And I was just like, how sick and twisted is our society to justify or try to bring justification to such actions? Yeah, and you know, I, I don't want to like keep pointing in, but what you just said, even like it's his kids, but there was a part. In the, in, the, in the video where he says, don't bring your juvenile daughter around here because she might end up getting that. So the, so his kids are a part of this greater society that my kids are a part of, that you know I have to be conscious of the fact that there are men 
or there is a Bootsy that is training his sons to be a predator to my daughters. I don't have boys, I have daughters. And you know, th this kind of behavior is just um, totally unacceptable. So there, there, there are so many ways that you can look at this. Uh, so I want to level set too by saying, and I want to be, you know, give full disclosure that look, I got involved sexually at a very, very young age. And I'm not gonna sit here and pretend as if, you know, be a hypocrite and say that I didn't. The difference was, I was interacting with people my age. I wasn't looking to go for the 18 and 20 and whatever years old. So who knows how old these ladies are. And the other sick and twisted part of it is the ladies that were willing to participate in this facilitation of rape. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that. So Boosie being an adult, the ladies that participated being adults, both sat there rational and thought that this was something that was normal. Like, I, I guess I don't understand it. So if you could speak a little bit to that, Dahlia, I mean, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think you guys have really hit on it, like the normalization of conduct, right? If we as a culture, as whatever it may be, say, okay, this is normal behavior, this is acceptable behavior, that's why you see a lack of outrage when it comes to it. Um, but Donald, I think you really brought up a good point when you were talking about, look, I'm not gonna be hypocritical, this is what happened. But I think the big difference between what you're describing and what Boosie described is one word, and that's choice, right? right? You had a choice in what happened to you. This is literally somebody saying, I'm going to have these acts committed upon you. You have right. to say so. And the way it seemed is like, is this like one big room? This is all happening. Or the kids are watching it happen to each other. And exactly like y'all said, it's, it's that predatory nature that we're teaching, right? Mm -hmm. It's that, um, you know, this is what you do in order to um, show your manliness, show your manhood, things like that. And another thing, Jamie, that you brought up is not only is that breeding the predator, but guess what those kids are doing when they go to school? Mm -hmm. So now you have another element of peer educating and you're enforcing that normalization and saying, oh, look what my dad did for me last night. Or guess what happened to me last night? Y'all should really have that happen. Maybe you could come over. You know what I mean? So you're like, you're continuing mm -hmm that um, misconception that this behavior is acceptable and that it's healthy. Um, mm -hmm. Because like you said, it's it's something that we see steeped generation to generation, which is why the commentary is so split because that's the environment. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah, yeah. I think also what's interesting to kind of just affirm what you said, Daya, about the environment is that um, Boosie alludes to it's the same woman that quote unquote checked him that's checking his nephews and also his sons. Yeah. And so this woman is significantly older than his children because these are the same woman that committed sexual acts on him as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, so Dahlia, I have a question. Um, he's verbalized these things publicly. Mm -hmm. Can he be held accountable for this or investigated? Um, in a court of law because of these things that he's made, these public statements that he's made? Investigated, absolutely. Um, I would be shocked if an investigation has not already been launched. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, that's something that won't be necessarily made public until it's you know completed and charging decisions are made, if any. Um, because there has to, it can't just count on his word. You know, there's going to likely need to be disclosure or there's going to need to be some other type of evidence, whether that be video, whether that be um, the boys actually talking about what happened to them, um, corroborating witnesses. Maybe somebody saw the girls go into the room with the boys. Something like, you know, there has to be more to it than just something he says. Our criminal justice system, we don't um, imprison people just off of word. We need evidence in addition to that. And so I, I think that definitely it's enough to launch an investigation for sure. Let's, let's, let's uh, convert a little bit to another aspect of, I guess, what this whole thing sheds a light on, right? So you just spoke about, you know, in order for some type of prosecution or investigation, um, in order for that to take place, someone has to speak up or there has to be corroborating evidence and so forth, right? So let's shift into the silence aspect of these kinds of crimes, right? I guess, how prevalent is it? Is it that there are people that close to us. You're talking about father-son relationship. That's one step, not even one step removed. That's flesh and blood. That's facilitating a rape, mm -hmm. right? Let's talk about uh, how prevalent it is to be in the same household and against your will, 
for these kinds of crimes to happen? How how often does that happen? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question because I think that we spend so much time, um, you know, pushing the narrative of stranger danger and teaching your kids, you know, look out for the white van or look out for the person trying to lure you into their car, whatever it may be. But I could tell you in almost 15 years of prosecuting, the vast majority focused on crimes against children. I would say over 90% of my cases, the child was being sexually assaulted by a family member or somebody that the family knew. So we spend so much time, you know, kind of throwing our kids towards the red herring. Not, not that it's not important. We got to educate on stranger danger, but more importantly, we need to educate on body boundaries. We got to educate on teaching our kids. It's okay to say no to physical touch or that, you know, we have a lot of issues. I can't tell you how many times I've been in um, interviews with kids that are talking about what happened to them, really just horrific things that they've been through. And then you might bring in, you know, their moms kind of talk to them about the case, things like that. And mom's talking about, yeah, you know, he did it to me too when I was a kid, talking about wow. the offender that perpetrated on their child. And so you see this multi-generational issues happening and there's such a, a cloud of secrecy that's around it. Um, I think generally for sexual assault, but especially for male victims, especially for male victims, there's so much shame behind it. And I think part of the reason is because, so we have this misnomer sometimes that of um, what sexual abuse can look like, right? Sometimes, um, you know, not to get too graphic, but there's like the, the Hollywood rape scene, if you will. Um, and you're expecting it to be bloody, gory, like very violent, things like that. Physiologically, sometimes a child's body reacts to that abuse. And it's not because they're enjoying it. It's not because they like it. It's because their body responds to the physical stimulus. And this is especially true when we have our male victims, you know, like getting an erection, they have no control over and right. their stimulation to their penis, they're going to have an erection. And so in their minds, they're like, well, was I abused because I was erect? And everybody's always told me that you only get an erection if you want to have sex or if right. you're excited or you want it, you know, want the encounter to happen. So with the male victims, we typically see that extra level of shame because their body might respond to the actual abuse that's happening, despite the fact that they don't want it to happen. Yeah. So what I heard is like, I mean, well, one of the things I heard you say was that most victims or most perpetrators are people that the children know. Yeah. So close. Cause um, that's even something that, um, that I have to be conscious of when, when we talk about church mm -hmm. um, and, and when I'm in that building, that that's a playground for a pedophile because, mm -hmm. you know, in church, you just trust everybody, brother, right. so -and -so, deacon, so-and-so. And, you know, and sometimes parents, what they do is they just drop their kids off and then they just leave them to walk around inside the building. And so mm -hmm. there's been many times where I've heard about, um, I mean, there's been cases with pastors, I mean, that have been involved with children and even like the, the Catholic church and things like that. Um, Dahlia, can you, can you, um, I know you specialize in the area of sex trafficking, correct? Correct. Um, what is the ratio? Well, most times I think our brain defaults to it's always girls that are sex, uh, sex traffic. Are there males that you come across those those cases of males, boys that are being trafficked as well? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So, you know, like you said, Jamie, when you see the narrative around sex trafficking, all the imagery we see is girls, right? We, we don't talk about boys that are involved in trafficking. There was a study that was out a few years ago um, that said that they estimated in interviewing um, youth and homeless populations that in talking to a lot of those young kids, males specifically, that nearly 50% of them reported being in a traffic situation where they were sold, whether it be for um, survival sex, which is maybe they just needed a place to stay, or they just needed a meal, or they just needed something to keep them alive for another day. Um, but nearly 50%, which is a really, really high percentage. Now I could say in the time that I was handling sex trafficking cases that we had one male victim come through in our caseload and we handled nearly a hundred defendants charged with trafficking related offenses. And to have only one male victim didn't say, oh, we're lucky we didn't have a male population problem. What it means is that we were deficient in identifying our male victims, that we weren't serving, we weren't speaking to them. We weren't making them feel safe to come to us and tell us that this had also happened to them. 
So we know that it's at a really high rate. And I think legally was really interesting bringing it back to the Boosie situation. Now, of course, Boosie didn't outright say, you know, I paid this woman to come and do this with all these little boys. Um, but if he had paid them, if he had paid the lady to come and do this to these boys, then that's another level. And I almost feel like it's a really interesting legal analysis to see would that qualify as sex trafficking? Because again, we always think of the child being sold for sex, not the child whose sex is being purchased for. Mm, um, uh, wow. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting, I think it identifies possibly a really interesting loophole that from you know, all the states need to maybe think about, like if this is happening and the the child is the person who the sex is being purchased for, that's also trafficking. Like it's in the spirit of the law that we want to protect our kids from what's happening. Wow. 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 So 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 you spoke about, I guess, the fact that there's this uh, huge gap between representation of young boys or men in terms of being the victim. Uh, so how do you close that gap? So if it's, if society already has a way of uh, silencing men from coming forward or boys from coming forward, I guess, how, what do you do? Is it just merely education? I mean, wh what exactly do you do to close that gap? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good question. And I don't know that I have all the answers to that, but I think it starts, you know, in our own spheres of influence with the young boys that we may know. Um, whether they be our own children, whether they be, you know, nephews, folks close to us. I just think that it's it's really important that we um, we start having those conversations that, hey, look, like this is not OK. Um, you know, so as a sex crimes prosecutor, crimes against children prosecutor, the first thing that I always tell parents is, number one, teach your kids their proper body parts, because God forbid, if there's ever a disclosure to happen, they need to be able to call the part by what it is. Um, and I think then what we also have to do is, like I said earlier, body boundaries. You know, culturally it's big, sign of respects, an elder comes in, you give them a hug, you acknowledge them, there's physical contact. And if a kid says, you know, I don't wanna hug them, you know, we kind of shove them that way. No, go, don't be rude, go give them a hug. And we're teaching the kids that it's not okay to say no. Um, now, when you talk about boys as they get older, right? especially talking about our young black boys, as a mom raising two young black boys, you know, we all are familiar, they're now 12 and 14, we're familiar with the fact that we gotta start talking to them about, look, I understand you're 12 and 14, but the world doesn't see you as a 12 and 14 year old. The world right. is seeing you as a man. Um, you know, they're, they're constantly being influenced by things from society coming at them, telling them, you know, hypersexualization and and all these different types of things and, and saying this is how you get to manhood. So it is a really delicate balance between saying, hey, like you got to understand the world's perception of you, but I still want you to be a kid. You got plenty of time for all that other stuff. But, you know, but understand that the rest of the world sees you like that. Yeah. And it's so true, because even when I go shopping for my daughters, there's the clothes that's made for girls my age, for girls my age girls that are my daughter's age, I mean, it's like, there's nothing appropriate. Like nobody can be little girls anymore, you know? And, and that, that, that hypersexual, hypersexuality is so prevalent in our society that mm -hmm. I mean, sex sells everything. You know, you, you sell in the car, put a woman in the bikini on it. You know, a guy, as Mark said, somebody on the, um, on the, that's watching said, man, we were taught that sex at a young age is okay. And it's something that should be done mm -hmm. and we have to change that. I have a question for you. I have a question for you. So obviously we're in this new COVID space and, you know, I look, I love the fact that I get to be home with my family because I enjoy being around them and it's a good time. Right. Yeah. But there are some people that are actually living with the predator and, and have, and have no escape. Yeah. Right. We always say, um, you know, if something is happening, you know, to you, you're being abused and so forth, uh, that you should re report it. You're in close proximity with the predator now. What do you say to those people right now that are sitting in those kinds of situations that are experiencing that abuse right now? What do you say to those folks? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Exactly what you're describing is on the rise right now. Um, as kids are, are entrapped with their offender. Um, and schools were a huge location of disclosure, that safe place where if something was happening that they could tell somebody. And obviously that's not an option right now. Um, not to say that 
all kids disclose at school, but the more opportunities to be safe, right. uh, the better. But, you know, in today's kind of what we're going through with COVID and everything, man, you just got to reach out until somebody listens. You know, I can't say, oh, if you just make this phone call, everything will stop. Everything will be OK. But for your own safety, for your own um, your own ability to try to protect yourself in the situation that you are literally probably trapped in right now. You just got to keep saying it till somebody listens. You know, if you disclose to a parent and they don't listen to you, go to the auntie, go to the grandma. If they don't listen, go to the friend. Just keep saying it until somebody does something to help you. Because um, unfortunately, the, the reality is that there are plenty of kids who do disclose and the people who they disclose to do not do anything. I got a got a question about disclosure. Have you like found that there's a difference in disclosure between boys and girls or vice versa, or is it pretty much like the same rate? Yeah, Jordan, that's a good question. So statistically in the cases that I've seen prosecuting, we do have more female victims than we do male victims. Um, mm -hmm. I think there was a study out a while ago that one in four um, girls may have been uh, molested or sexually abused before the age of 18 and one in six boys. Um, so you're, you know, those numbers, they're kind of close, but I would definitely say the vast majority of boys that um, we see or kids that we see in sex crimes are girls. But I think also society has a role to play in that. Again, with the imagery, like we, a lot of times the boys don't feel like it was something that was that bad um, or they're taught that, you know, you just deal with it or you're taught that, well, your body reacted so you must have wanted it. And so you have all those dynamics that do impact the disclosure, but the actual way that disclosure comes out follows a lot of the similar pathways, regardless of the gender. Um, it may be disclosing, like I said, to a parent, it might be somebody at school. What we get a lot of actually is peer mm. disclosure. So you're mm. talking to your friend in the classroom and you're like, man, this like there's some stuff going on at home and um, you know, I don't like it. And um, over the kind of evolution of that friendship, the little bits come out. And so we've had plenty of cases where it's another student who then goes and discloses to their parent or discloses to a teacher what's going on uh, with the kids that are being victimized. So it's interesting you brought up the school system, right? So just recently, I think maybe over the past three weeks, I've seen maybe two or three cases, right? Of either a coach or a teacher or someone in the position of authority um, in, in the school system that was accused of having underage sex with a minor. So in both cases, I think the ages were 13. Um, maybe a few years ago, there was like a slew, and even actually this year, I believe there were like a slew of band directors mm -hmm. that have, I mean, quite a bit of kids under their care at any given moment. Uh, and these positions are, are positions of trust where, you know, I know me, I, I was in a band, I trust my band director. I mean, I was around him all the time and spent a lot of time there, right? Mm -hmm. But these are the people now that are in these positions of trust where, again, Jamie talked about, you know, dropping off your kid and you just kind of taking off and letting this person kind of be the uh, guardian for the moment. And that's where a lot of the, the crimes are happening. You hear about these teachers that are having sex with these young boys. And so forth and so forth and so forth. Like, what is it about these grownups when there are a plethora of people their age uh, of the same sex, opposite sex? I mean, you know, whatever you're into, what is it that 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 causes, you know, these adults to think that that's OK? Like, I know that, you know, we say that, you know, this kind of behavior is a mental issue. But what is it like? What, what's the draw? I don't get it. Yeah. So. Um, when you're talking about offender topology, what you're talking about is really there's two main categories. So there's going to be the opportunistic offender and there's the preferential offender. Right. And so to unpack that a little bit, um, the, the opportunistic offender is going to be the person of, OK, well, this is here. I have a chance to get involved with this child. Like there's just a space for it because I'm in a position of trust, because whatever it may be, the circumstances may be, I then therefore have an opportunity to access this population. Um, the, the preferential offender is gonna be somebody who says, my sexual drive is driven by a four-year-old. That's what I like. That's what I, when I envision a sexual relationship, 
I want a four-year-old. And so they're always going to go to that specific age group, that specific body type, that specific hair color, that specific whatever it may be. Now, whether you're opportunistic or whether you're preferential, either way, it is a sickness. It is a sickness and it is um, a really devastating illness that impacts so many. Now, when you dig a little bit deeper into it, right, when you're talking about, like you said, those dynamics of people and trust and things along those lines. Um, so, Donald, for example, uh, those that know you know that you got a little bit of a shoe addiction, right? So, a little bit. Somebody. <laughs> wow. Now I'm being nailed to the cross. <laughs> just saying. I'm just saying. Um, now, if you're somebody that has a shoe addiction, where's somewhere that you might like to go? Right. Like where you're going to go to where the sneaker heads are. You're going to go to where the sneakers are available. Right. So when you start talking about sex offenders, when you start talking about predators, where are they going to go? They're going to go to where there's a whole bunch of kids that they can pick from. Just like somebody who has a healthy desire for something in their lives, like sneakers, if it's not too bad of an addiction. Um, you know, somebody that prefers children is going to embed themselves in a place where they have accessibility to kids. Now, the other layer of that, when you talk about, you know, jury trial, right, you know that sex offenders aren't stupid. They know that there's always a chance their victim might say something. There's always a chance their victim might disclose. Um, and so they're smart about it. So number one, they want to be highly esteemed. So their credibility, their trust level, like you said, Donald, is really high. People, um, we see a lot of times people that are really highly esteemed in the community, people who are known for taking care of others, people who are known um, for that person that's, you know, really reliable and accountable and just does a lot to give back to the community. Because what that does is that elevates them in our minds. Now, who do they pick? This could be answered in a lot of ways. There's a lot of different reasons that they pick certain kids. But one of the main driving factors that we see when they're picking kids is they want to look at a kid that lacks credibility. So what's that look like? Mm -hmm. That looks like the kid that's loud mouth, that cusses out teachers, that um, has behavior issues, um, the girl that you know gets bullied or the boy that gets bullied, um, the one that maybe has a, a reputation for you know breaking windows, something along those lines. Because what they know is if that victim decides to come forward, what are people gonna say? Uh, you lying. Troublemaker. We're gonna believe right. him. Do you know all that this offender has done in the community? Right. And what's interesting is that I see that dynamic present even more in the boy cases. Mm -hmm. And when I tell you that my offenders in my boy cases, they're married, they got kids, they are holding positions of privilege and esteem in the community. And it's exactly what happens when those boys come forward. Him? Wow. Man, nobody believes him. You know, he smokes weed in the back. Who's going to believe him? He started drinking at 11. Or they know that there's been prior abuse, right? Mm. You know, or so maybe the girl who, oh, she's fast. I heard right. that she does this, that, and the other. She's lying. She, you know, so-and-so didn't do that to her. So they're very calculated and they're very smart in how they pick their victims that they're going to um, offend against. Yeah. That's funny. It's funny you said that there was a recent case that I saw and my timeline is always lit. There was a recent case where there was a track coach that um, had sexual relations with a 13 year old. Mm -hmm. And what he, the way that he he the way that he he basically staged this whole thing was that he created a dummy Instagram account that he would use to communicate with the young girl and in, in, and when you looked at the uh, police um, affidavit or whatever um, that's called, um, there was text between him and the girl and you could see the grooming and basically giving her the play by play. If you get caught what to do, you know, the fact that, you know, this is a dummy account that, you know, no one will ever be able to find it. And if somebody find it, all you got to do is just deny it. And basically the grooming and grooming and grooming that he did to the point where he basically was in a full blown relationship with this girl. Yeah. Um, as a parent, I'm, I'm going to keep it funky, right? I'm going to jail. There's, you don't even have to worry about law enforcement getting involved. You don't even have to worry about, you know, due trial and process and all that. I'm going to jail. You understand what I'm saying? Because if I entrust you as an adult, 
to be around my kids and our kids are in sports, they're in extracurricular activities and all these things that we do because you can't be over their shoulders, shoulders all day long, mm -hmm. right? But me knowing the way that I'm wired, I'm going to jail. Like there's no if, ands or buts about it. I'm going to jail, yeah. you know? So kids with like young girls, my brother has triplets, triplet girls and, a, oh, and wow. another young daughter. So he had four daughters. And to think that there are people in this society that are out there that try to find justifiable reasons. You know, Jamie just talked about she was dressing grown. You know, she was dressing, you know, really provocative for her age. And so I wasn't sure what what age she was. Do you see instances where people actually get off in these cases? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. We have, unfortunately, a really big problem with victim blaming. Um, as a society, we don't want to believe these things happen. We know it happens, but we don't want to believe it happens that way. And I think a big thing psychologically is that if we believe it happens as easily as it really does, that we are completely terrified every time our kids step out of the house. Um, but Donald, and I'm not saying this to pick on you, I promise, but mm -hmm. exactly what you said is something that we do talk to parents about, like the whole thing, if somebody touches you, I'm going to jail, that's it, that's a wrap, I'll kill them, things like that. And while you mean that with the best intent, and I'm not picking on you because parents across the board say this, but think about your child, right? Think about a child who hears their parents saying, if anybody ever touches you, I'm gonna kill them and I'm just gonna go to jail. That's it. You're saying it out of love and you're saying it out of protection. But then imagine, God forbid, that child does have something happen to them. And then they're not worried about themselves. They're worried about daddy. Because if I tell daddy's going to kill him and daddy's going to go to jail. And so I can't say anything. I got to keep it quiet. You know, so I say that to say internalize that notion. Don't say it to the kids. Um, you may feel that way. You may actually do that. And I'm not advocating for that because <laughs> I really as a prosecutor. Right, right. Complicated. But what I'm saying is that we have to be conscious of what our kids are being fed as far as what our response is. And I think. The approach to that is, yes, by all means, feel that way, like I said. But the approach to that is to have those conversations with your kids to be like, listen, we need you to understand that, you know, if anybody ever tells you to keep a secret, there's no such thing as keeping secrets from mommy or daddy. Um, there, it's not OK. We do the like bathing suit test. If your bathing suit covers it, nobody else should be touching it. Um, things along those lines that you're having those conversations and you're creating safe spaces for the conversations to take place. And guess what that means you got to do, parents? You got to talk about sex with hmm. your kids. Because guess what? If you're not, guess who is? Your friends. Who's your kids. That's who's talking to your Who's kids. We got to take control of this narrative. We got to be over it and saying, like, defining what does a healthy relationship look like? Yeah. Um, so when going back to like, do people get off for it? Absolutely. Because of those dynamics that I told you about before, because they're picking these kids that have been through so much hell already. And so people are like, Psh, that kid, if we think that we don't have throwaway kids in our society, we're fooling ourselves. Right. If we don't think that we have kids that we consider disposable, we are fooling ourselves. Right. And those predators know exactly which kids those are. And right. that's who they're going to pick on. Right. right. One other thing I want to say on that, when we're talking about um, there's something called an ACE score. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. So when we're talking about the long-term impact that child abuse has, that sexual abuse has, physical abuse, um, which is one of the strong rated adverse childhood experiences, like this isn't a one and done thing, right? It's not like you got molested as a kid and now you're over it and things are fine. What we know is that kids then cope with that abuse depending on how they're able to normalize that in their brain, right? Because everybody, whatever your trauma is, you got to absorb it and you got to live with it. There's nothing that can happen to erase it. So you're going to see kids, if they're not able to disclose, if they don't feel like they have that safe place, then what are they going to do? Self-medicate. Self-medicate. They're going to get high. They're going to get drunk. They're going to use whatever's in mommy, daddy's cabinet to make that feeling of hurt go away. You're going to have issues then with criminality future victimization. When you really look at all of our issues that we have that impact society from our adult population, 
most of those individuals rank really, really high on the ACE scores because something has happened to them as a child. And it's something that we are not responsive to as a society to deal with, to understand how much long-term impact it's going to have on all of us. Yeah. And that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you in regards to the cases that you see of mm -hmm. predators. Do you see a lot of them have been, are they uh, form, people who have been offended before yeah. abused and then they're, the, the, the way they medicate their misery is about taking out their anger or whatever their frustration on, out on another child. Is that something that, um, that comes up at your table? You know, what's really interesting about that, Jamie, is for my adult population, um, I can't say for sure, because obviously that's going to come from a disclosure from the offender. Yeah. And if they disclose to their defense attorney, maybe I will know if, if they don't, then I won't know. But what's really interesting is that, so part of what we deal with specifically in Georgia where I prosecute, prosecuted in the past, was that um, we have laws that are called SB 440, which is where a child can be charged as an adult. And sex crimes are one of those offenses where a child can be charged as an adult. So they would come to our unit. Um, some of the most heartbreaking cases is when you have that 14, 15 year old defendant charged with rape charged with aggravated child molestation, and the victim is his seven-year-old sibling, um, whether it be male or female. And you know, you know that that 14, 15-year-old went through the same exact thing yeah. when they were that age. And so it, it really creates this really vicious cycle. And, and honestly, we feel like in those opportunities, um, you know, what's the best recourse? What's the best recourse for the victim? What's the best recourse for the defendant? And what's the best recourse for society? Right. And really try to be intentional about breaking that cycle. Right. So uh, that, in there. Yeah, that just blew my mind because I know you're in a red state. I'm pretty sure Texas probably has the same law as well. And just recap that for me. You said that if a, if a minor rapes another minor, they can be tried as an adult. Mm -hmm. And that uh, means they will... Yeah more than likely go to a juvenile detention center, depending on their age, because I know in Texas, 17, you can be put inside of an adult penitentiary, which right. is automatic as well. You know, that's just, yeah. our system is just crazy. So, wow, I, I had no idea that that was that law. Yeah. So, and I think what happens is, you know, this is really one of those areas that we can make a huge impact in our juvenile justice system to have really comprehensive treatment programs for our youthful sex offenders um, because we do have the biggest chance and opportunity at rehabilitation. Uh, because again, the normalization, although it's ingrained, it's not deeply ingrained because it's only had 15 years to ingrain versus 50. Um, so the wraparound services, the, the therapy, the um, reprogramming, all these different types of things that can take place in the youthful setting is definitely helpful. Now, just because they can be charged as an adult doesn't mean they will be charged with it as an adult. And so what's really important is that we make sure that we have people in positions of power, people that are working in these units um, that really have our kids' best interests in mind, right? It's, technically, I could give a kid that in that scenario, 25 years to serve without any chance of parole. Mm -hmm. But is that what's best, right? right. And so being able to fashion some level of accountability in addition to making sure that you're putting your victim on a path to restoration and really trying to interrupt that cycle is, is very important from a criminal justice standpoint, because we got two options. We can make our offenders, especially our youthful offenders, we can make them better citizens or we can make them better criminals. Yeah, and restorative, yeah, restorative justice isn't something that is practiced in America, you know? At all. We like. We We're like. working on it, Jamie. All right. Don't give up on it yet. On the other end of the spectrum, like it's, it's taking quite long to get there. I, I think I'm, Jordan. You, sorry, my bad. I think Jordan had a had a comment. Yeah. Yeah, I just had a question. Do socioeconomic factors or even demographics play a role in sexual abuse? Like in terms of the rate of sexual abuse in this community over that community or within this specific. A group of people over that specific group of people, or is it just across the board? It's just the same. Yeah, great question, Jordan. No, uh, abuse is a great equalizer. It knows okay. no income. It knows no racial, socioeconomic, demographic. It's just how um, you know. Sometimes it's how it's dealt with. You know, we talk about a, a spirit of secrecy, but there's also you know the other dynamic. If you have very affluent populations and the offender is the the source of income, and that's really regardless of what your income level is, 
I've seen it unfortunately time and time again where they're choosing dollars over their kids. You know, if it, he, I know he did it to my baby, but I need to keep a roof over their head and I need to keep food in their mouths. Um, and I've heard that sentiment across the board, regardless if they're making millions or if they're making, you know, a couple thousand. So it just, it goes across the board. Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point because um, secrecy is huge in the African-American um, community. Let's keep, let's keep the law out of our business. You know, I know uncle so-and-so did such and such to you, or auntie so-and-so did such and such to you, you know, or I don't believe you at all because how, how could you blame that on, on my uh, boyfriend? You know, so mom, mommy is dating some new random guy and he's in the house with these young girls and young girl then comes to mommy and say, hey, such and such touched me or did such and such to me. Um, and mommy is like, she's taking the guy's position over the daughter, you know, like, how do you, how do you even infiltrate that cycle, that thinking, how do you even. And then the, and then McDonald, there's the other one. It happened to me. I got mm -hmm. through it. So, you know, mm -hmm. right. Get over it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes again, that normalization factor of like, this is just what we go through. This is just wow. talk about rites of passage. You know, this is what happens to us. Um, and so to break through that, you know, it's it's been a lot of different ways. And I, I've got to, you know, say that for the most part, for the non-offending parents that have been victims of abuse themselves, they actually really beat themselves up over it a lot, even if it's the same offender. You know, they there's a, a perception and illusion that um, and this is getting really deep into the uh, kind of the psychology of victimization when it comes to this. But. And I say this term, and, and I know it may seem shocking to, to hear it in this context, but they feel special. They feel special that the abuse is happening to them. And by special, I don't mean like positive special, but unique. Like this is mm. only happening to me. This doesn't, he only picks me because, and again, the self-blame comes in because I do X, Y, and Z, because, you know, I wore purple or because I walked too close to him or because whatever it is that that self-blame may be. And so that that perception of uniqueness is sometimes what prevents the protection of their child because they believe that it stopped with them. When the abuse stopped with them, he's not going to abuse anybody else because, or she's not going to abuse anybody else because that was a me thing. That's not a them thing. It's a me thing as a victim. Um, and so a lot of times when I see those parents come in, they're very contrite. They're very upset. They're very like, I thought, I thought this wouldn't, I never wanted this to happen to them. I've already been through it. So that's what I see more of than the like, you just got to deal with it. Now, my trafficking world, um, it's a little, it can be a little different. We do see multi-generational trafficking. Um, you know, you're, you, the, the kind of the playbook, the 101, your victim gets sexually abused as a child. Uh, mom chooses offender over child. Uh, child then is trying to get out of that household that then gives the opportunity for your exploiter to come in and start pimping that child out. Um, and then you have this consistent thing of the, then the mom looks at the child and says, you're stupid. You, oh, I'm sorry, I missed a step. And so then uh, child starts acting out sexually because of the abuse by a boyfriend. And the mom says, you're stupid for giving it away for free. Go make some money off of it. Don't ever give it away for free. And then that's how they get into the exploitation. So we wow. see a lot of that generationally happening. Um, so yeah, it's 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 very complicated dynamics to all of it. So Dog, I have a. Oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Jamie. Go ahead, go ahead. A little bit off, so go ahead. It's um, it's more. Of a no, this this was going way way left. I, I actually <laughs> sat sat on a jury, mm -hmm. uh, and this is what really kind of brought it home to me to kind of see how in close proximity these kinds of things can happen. So. Maybe about three or four years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, I sat on a jury on a case um, and I was actually selected uh, for this case. And it took maybe about three days to to uh, convict this guy. So these were folks that were undocumented, um, you know, aliens um, living here in Texas. And there was a guy that was a neighbor that the family trusted, you know, to come in and out as he pleased. And they, you know, this was a guy that they were really, really close with. And the girl at the time was five. 
when the guy committed these these acts and he did it repeatedly over and over and over but the family refused to get the law involved because of the doc, you know being undocumented so they didn't want to you know get deported so they just remained silent yeah and in this particular case though someone else reported it because they witnessed it happening and they noticed that the, the daughter was enacting normal. I think this was like an aunt or something like that. And so um, I just remember having to, you know, the, the prosecutor, you know, asking the five year, you know, I think she was maybe six or seven at the time of the trial. And uh, the prosecutor asking the girl to describe in great detail what happened. And I was actually shocked that a five year old could recall the specifics in yep. great detail, date, time, you know, what she had on, what he had on, what he did. I mean, like everything recalled mm -hmm. so much. And what I don't know if that was due to the trauma that, you know, she just experienced that it was just locked into her her mind. But she was able to go through that, through the whole scenario and paint a picture. And we actually ended up giving that guy life without parole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and what that's not unusual at all for a child to be re to be able to recall those details but there's also no cookie cutter response right there's no right. Cookie cutter response to abuse some kids may try to block it out push it out not think about it mm -hmm. um, never want to speak about it other kids can you know remember every single detail and rehearse it every you know night before they go to bed um, you have some kids that may act out that may have different behavior changes and those behavior changes aren't always bad you know, um, we've seen kids run the gamut. So like they may go to school and they may not pay attention and then they start flunking classes. They start missing school. And I also have kids that go in and they start getting straight A's because mm -hmm. they have no control over what happens to their bodies. But their schoolwork, they have control over. So they latch mm -hmm. on to that because that psychologically gives them control back into their lives. And so every kid's going to respond different to their abuse scenario. And there's you know, that's one of the issues we have as prosecutors is that sometimes we ex we have this version of what we think victims should respond like when it comes to abuse. And when we have a victim that doesn't act according to that narrative, we're like, well, that's not what I thought it would look like. And the reality is, is that it looks like anything. It looks like nothing at all. And it looks like the most extreme cases where kids are throwing feces on the wall and doing all sorts of other things. So we can't corner our kids that are going through these really traumatic situations into one response. I did also want to talk about before, um, before I forget, in the video clip that was played, um, y'all saw where Boosie was talking about porn. I showed them porn. I show them all this kind of stuff, yeah. like that, right? So we know that accessibility to porn is so easy now, right? Like, uh, back in the day, it used to be, you know, the Playboy magazine or this or that. Now it's at your fingertips. Yeah. And, and instant, you know, no effort at all. And if your child has a device, how easily accessible it is. Um, there's a lot of studies also on the impact of pornography on our kids. Um, there was a study that was done that says that by the age of 11 or 12, most of our kids have been exposed to pornography. And so when we're teaching our kids about sex through the form of pornography, which as a genre has trended to be more violent, has trended to be more um, rape culture, these other things that come into play with a lot of what's happening within the porn industry. And we're not talking to our kids about healthy sexual relationships. Guess who then is defining what a relationship should look like? Right. Um, guess who is then defining to our sons how to treat women and to our little girls on how they are to be treated. And so we have to be really conscious of that exposure. Um, Hyperexposure to pornography can impact um, sexual performance. It can impact, um, again, defining healthy sexual relationships. There's so much negative connotation with it that that young brain that's not even physically fully formed yet can't absorb and can't make sense of like as an adult that happens to look at porn can right. and from the trafficking standpoint we know that the higher rates of porn those men that watch higher rates of porn are more likely um to be in our sex buyer population yeah oh wow so my question is uh, 
kind of in the same field, but diet, was this something that you always wanted to practice uh, mm. in this area of the law? How did you, you know, did you did you start in law school with this in mind? What triggered you to go in this route? Yeah. So again, good question. So um, yeah, for me, the decision was kind of one that found me versus I found it. Um, you know, I think like so many other people uh, across the world, I was a victim of child abuse as a child. And it's almost like I know that y'all talk about therapy all the time. And sometimes outside of sitting in the therapist's office, sometimes I think we latch on to professions that are therapeutic for us. Hmm. And so I think the ability to help children um, was was definitely a calling. And I will say the the work that crimes against children prosecutors do is not for the meek. I think in, in any, you know, dealing with sexual assault victims um, across the board, but especially children, when you have four or five year olds and 12, 13 year olds describing really, really horrific um, acts that are happening to them, um, you have to operate in a different level. And, you know, for my kids, for better or for worse, you know, um, they're always like, man, mommy doesn't let us do anything. We can't go anywhere. And I'm like, look, that's what happens when you get raised by a sex crimes prosecutor. Like, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> so I, I actually have one question for you. So um, with any crime, we always talk about statute of limitations. And in mm -hmm. a victim's mind, they may say, like, you know what? This has, this probably happened to me so long ago. So yeah. it's kind of pointless for me to, to bring it up. So let's say the crime happened to this person as a minor. Are there any limitations tied mm -hmm. to the statute as far as when, how long it, it, it um, it's legal to actually prosecute prosecute a case? Yeah, uh, really good question. So that's going to be dependent on each state. Each state will have their own statute of limitations, and um, some of them are working proactively to extend when we are have a better understanding of trauma, and that disclosure is not something that we can like expect to happen in one set amount of time. Uh, but what I would say is even if your disclosure time period has ended, still report. And why do I say that? You're like, well, why report if then nobody can, nothing can happen from it? What we do know is that sexual offenders are not a one and done, um, right. right? They're gonna keep perpetrating. And the fact that you're able to come forward and talk about your abuse and have that documented, that can help a child who also discloses and giving them that corroboration and helping to their credibility that this offender is really somebody that can um, that's dangerous and that this is what they do. Yeah, I thought this was a good question, Dahlia. Um, time to answer it. Have you seen cases where kids are repeat victims? Absolutely, I've seen where kids are repeat victims. I've seen a case where a child reports um, that law enforcement's involved and that um, the person is on bond, and the mom lets the person back into the house, and hmm. the person reoffends on that per on the child, um, and the mom actually went to jail for that one because you know that this guy did this to your child and still had accessibility. We also see that poly victimization is huge. Again, remember what I talked about? They're gonna pick that kid that nobody thinks is you know, believable. And right. oftentimes when kids are subjected to a lot of abuse, what happens is then they're gonna act out. They're gonna have all these other behaviors that lends to lessen their credibility. And that's who those offenders will then go to. And like I said, they're smart. And a lot of them think in a similar way. So we've had victims that are offended by um, offended on by numerous individuals, numerous perpetrators, three, four, same victim, three, four different defendants, and it's the same child or the repeat offense by the same offender. Absolutely happens. So there's no real way to, I guess, predict who's gonna be an offender or or not. Is there a profile that you can, or behavior types that you can look at that's kind of predictive of someone kind of fitting the bill? Yeah, so there's no profile, right? Like there's no like, this is what an offender looks like. Um, what we do know though is like, I can't remember, I think Donald, you brought up those grooming behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. you, wanna, you wanna be aware of those things. Are there people in your kid's life that are testing secrecy? And you might be like, well, how do I know that? You talk to your kids. You talk to your kids about testing secrecy. Like I said, we don't keep secrets from mommy and daddy. If somebody is trying to keep secrets from mommy and daddy, that's somebody that doesn't mean you any good. And you right. tell us immediately and we'll take care of that. I actually had a situation with a teacher that pseudo tested secrecy with one of my kids. And I you know, immediately put a stop to it because that was a huge red flag. You don't ask my kid if he's going to keep a secret, you know. Um, and then the other grooming behaviors. 
we all know that it's it's really great for kids to have mentors in their lives, people who are going to feed into them, things like that. And so I say this um, with the understanding that there are really people out there that mean well, but there's also people who use, use those positions to get access to kids. And I'm not saying mentors specifically, but those behaviors of let me buy you things. Um, let me treat you to these uh, different ex uh, events or maybe different environments that you haven't been around. Um, and again, elevating themselves in the community by saying, look at what a great job I'm doing to help this kid along when really it's part of the grooming process. Yeah. Jordan, did, uh, did, did you have a question? Yeah, I was um, I was thinking, I got a lot of questions. My mind is racing. Uh, this is really good. Um, I'm thinking about like sexual education and, uh, you know, as a pastor, when I talk to people in the community, even in the church, I'm always hearing, you know, parents wanting to kind of maintain a level of innocence. Thus, they don't talk about sex. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I guess this is a question for the three of you all, because, you know, I have a fiance. I'm not married yet. Don't have any kids. But how do you how do you maintain a level of innocence, but at the same time, balance it between teaching your child proper sex education? Yeah, I think, um, I know diet has a whole, I know for me, my girls, we tell them it's a vagina, <laughs> number one. And they're like, I mean, you know, my daughters are like seven and eight, eight or nine, I don't know, they're somewhere around there, that age, but we tell them this is a vagina. Nobody's supposed to touch there. The same thing that you brought up, Dahlia, about the baby suit. They know those things. So we start them. I know for, as, a, as a parent, my wife's a teacher. So we start them off with those things. Daddy, uh, men have a penis or girls have vaginas. So we don't like uh, come up with toy names for it. You know, in a sense, like this is my whatever, because we want them to know what their body parts are. But I'm sure, Dahlia, you have some more expertise in that area. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely important, number one. And then I also think that when we're talking about um, I always have the philosophy that if your kids are um, able to mentally form the question, that they're able to receive an answer. Mm. So, you know, how many of us are like, oh, when that question comes up, where do babies come from? Right. Right. They're like five, six. And you're like, are we really about to do this? And um, Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> so, luckily, uh, my husband has me. So he always would be like, go ask your mom. <laughs> so, you know, and I told him. We had that conversation. This is what happens. This is how, this is where babies come from. Now it's age appropriate, right? Like you're not getting into too much of the nuance, but you, they still deserve an answer. And so as they got older, the question would still come because their brains are developing, right? And so the answer I gave them before, they need more information on. And so that's, that's a huge thing of being open to talking to our kids about it because so many of us are so scared to talk to our kids about sex. And we think, oh, um, you know, if I just don't bring it up, if I shelter them, if I don't talk about it, if, if they don't listen to this um, song or if they don't watch this show, then they're protected. But we forget that peer education piece. The peer education piece is huge. Um, kids are going to hear about it. There's nothing we can do to insulate it. But again, we have the responsibility as parents to control that narrative and to talk about it. We got to talk to our kids about masturbation. We got to talk to our kids about healthy relationships. We got to talk to our kids about what healthy sexual relationships look like. Um, and we just got to, we have to also show that we are not reprimanding them and punishing them when they come to us with these questions so that as other questions form, they know it's safe to come to us. I think for some of the crazy questions my kids have come to me with, and I'm like, oh, I mean, I made the bed. I got to go lay in it because <laughs> some of those questions are off the chain. Let me warn you, but you got to be there. So I was going to say, you know, to Jordan, to your question, to your question, uh, you also have to know that as a parent, it's your prerogative as to how soon or how later you decide to do that. There's no one size fits all. All kids aren't built the same. So I'll tell you my experience. So you would think a person like me was like gung ho to have this conversation. And I've actually shied away from it. Mm -hmm. And I have not had that conversation with my with my kid, uh, with my son, because I didn't feel like I was ready to have it because I knew that having that conversation would open so many doors that I wasn't ready to go down. But I do think as a result of this conversation, I think that I would rather get to it before his friends get to him or the internet gets to him or someone else gets to him, right? So I would say use judgment, you know, use your personal judgment, talk about it with your spouse and, you know, come to a consensus on when you think it's time. 
Yeah. And there's books out there. Like y'all don't have to figure it. You don't have to do it on your own. There's really great age appropriate books on sex education. Jordan, I think you brought up the point about sex ed. You know, we don't have sex ed in schools and a lot of school systems. Right. We don't really have it in Georgia. Um, what it used to look like maybe when we were growing up, like that component is missing. And we most certainly don't talk about sex education in church. For so, sure. You know, know, these are things that we've got to <laughs> stand in the gap and be like, we got to have this conversation. Right. Yeah. Yo, and that's facts. Because um, I personally speaking, I didn't have that talk with my my parents. I learned it at school. You know, uh, somebody had Playboy magazines and they backpack and we all looked at it and we right. processed it that way. And it was an unhealthy way of learning it. And, you know, I paid the price for it too, you know, not learning the right way how to do it. So yeah, you want your kids to be, you want to be the first one to be able to have that conversation with your kids. Yeah. So look, um, I, I think we're approaching the hour. So um, Dahlia, I wanted to give you an opportunity to just kind of, you know, talk a little bit more about, you know, anything else that you think that we hadn't covered that you think the people uh, will probably appreciate as far as information, resources that you know of. I know that is different from state to state, but are there any, you know, national resources or uh, things that people can look for in their own communities that could potentially help them with this? Yeah. So rain.org um, with the the web address be below is a phenomenal resource that you could be able to um, connect with. There's actually a 24 seven number and they're connected to a lot of services um, throughout the country. So uh, they can help. And also with educating on on the topic, um, mm -hmm. we have a really great piece on sexual abuse in, in boys and men um, that I think is great to, again, change that narrative, change that misperception that a lot of times we have um, around this topic. Um, and we just got to talk. We got to talk to our kids about it. Um, we got to vote. Right. Yeah. We got to make sure that our leadership know that the realities of these issues and are not also feeding into the stereotypes when they're making charging decisions and saying, well, a boy can't be a victim of sexual assault or, you know, certain girls don't qualify as victims, those types of things. Um, and we got to show up for jury duty. Oh. We got to try to stop getting out of jury duty. Oh, yeah. For real. For real. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I tell my folks, stop complaining about the system if you're not going to go sit in jury duty. Yep. You know, I'll check. Can't beat that, right? <laughs> yeah. So look, man, so this was, you know, I think a really insightful conversation and I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Definitely touching on some things that I think that are taboo, you know, to talk about in our households and, and making sure that we're proactive as parents, um, being vigilant um, and also being kind of the, the first you know, step as far as our kids as it relates to sex and, and, and um, just education. Um, so we appreciate your time, you know, uh, sharing all the, the knowledge that you have and your experience and your background and just bringing some light to this conversation in a way that we couldn't do um, on our own. So we really appreciate the time. Um, so Jamie, any last thoughts you want to share? I just want to share that you are now an official really <laughs> queen. And so we thank you. All right. Two <laughs> <laughs> really dope dudes in a dahlia. That's right. That's right. That's right. And as usual, man, Jordan, thank you for your input. Thank you for sure, taking man. Appreciate y'all having me on the show. This was phenomenal. I learned so much. Thank y'all yeah. so much for talking about this. Thank y'all for bringing what's been hidden in the dark to the light. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, and we know this is not going to be a one and done, so we'll definitely probably have to call on you some more um, to talk about this very, very important topic that's affecting our community. Yeah, with that being said, this is two really dope dudes, and we out. Peace.